It is an enormous privilege for me to join you here at Concordia. Over the years, I have uh, crossed paths with this faculty member or that faculty member, and once in a while you have uh, sent one of your graduates to Trinity. Um, some of you will know the name Mark Burkholz, and um, uh, he, if, if you have any more graduates like that, send them our way. We're, we're happy to see them. And um, some of us have been involved recently in what we call generically the Scripture Project, a two-volume work that uh, begins to check, again, some of the tendencies toward drift in our current world. And Bob Culp, Dr. Robert Culp from this school, again, has uh, lent his expertise to that project. So in a variety of ways, we have increasingly crossed paths over the last few years, and I have been uh, deeply indebted for those um, uh, blossoming friendships. Now, let me tell you what I'm going to do today in the two sessions that I have with you. This morning, we're going to look at two parables in Luke, and this will be more or less straightforward exposition with a little background and the theology of Luke involved and so forth. And then this afternoon, before I plunge into the two designated parables on Matthew, I'm going to take about half my time to wrestle with you over the purpose of the parables, especially for Matthew 13. So you'll begin to get a little more theory after we've already begun the practice, um, which I suppose in the normal course of things is considered an inverted way of doing things, but um, I never claimed to be consistent. We begin with, Matthew, with Luke chapter 10, and I'm going to take the time to read the parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 and following. Hear then what scripture says. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So, too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. 
Although I have not field tested the theory, I suspect it is true that the best known parable of Jesus is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Yet what many people know of it, I suspect, is just the bare narrative, that is, in our text, verses 30 to 35, not the surrounding text that I read, and still less the surrounding chapters, all of which contribute to placing the parable itself in a certain theological and historical context. I suspect that one of the reasons why people like speaking from parables these days is because there has been a drift toward the narratival. I studied and lived in the United Kingdom for quite a number of years, and when I first went there in 1972, um, the great uh, English preacher uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones was still alive. And uh, he was certainly one of the greater preachers in the 20th century. Um, and now, to date, I think 72 or 73 volumes of his sermons have been released. Guess how many are from narrative portions of scripture? One. One. Eight volumes on Romans 1 to 8, six volumes on Ephesians, and so on, so on, so on. But almost all discursive material. Now, in all fairness to Dr. Lloyd-Jones, he incorporated a great number of other biblical passages, including narratival passages, into the course of his expositions. But he was certainly thinking in a kind of modernist, um, epistemologically modernist, not theologically modernist, uh, modernist mode of discourse. And at uh, a slightly later date, 80s and 90s, I spent quite a lot of time in Africa. And there it was difficult for me to find any south of the Sahel Af African preacher who was really good at discourse material. They handled narrative superbly, but it was harder to find preachers who could handle Romans. Today that's changing. In the West we have become more genre flexible, and nowadays I could introduce you to African preachers who are superb in discourse texts like Conrad Mbewe and others. And this is one of the good effects of globalization, I suspect. For God in his mercy has given us many, many different genres of scripture and it will rob us if we do not see what these different genres contribute to the knowledge of God. This is not accidental. It is not for nothing. He did not give us his book in the form of a dogmatics. And at some point we should reflect a little more on just what the significance of such genre flexibility is. Well, we'll come to a bit of that at least this afternoon in a very introductory sort of way. But I suspect that one of the reasons, one of the bad reasons why many people prefer stories, including parabolic stories today, is because stories tend to be more intrinsically open. You can interpret stories in a variety of different ways. But you are less likely to be able to interpret a story flexibly if the story is itself anchored in broader material. If it's anchored in a surrounding context, both theological and historical, then, then the narrative itself becomes much more tied down. So what I intend to do this morning is uh, run through the parable itself, that is from 25 to 37, then look at the larger context, then the Lucan context before we start thinking through pastoral and theological implications for our own lives. If you rip the story, the parable kernel, 30 to 35, out of its context, then 
inevitably we start imposing on it a context that comes from our own cultural background. It's just an inevitable thing to do. And then the whole parable simply becomes something about how you have to be nice to your neighbors and your neighbors are anybody who are, all those who are in need, something of that order. But a few minutes close reading will show that such an inference about the text meaning is a bit removed from what is required by the surrounding argumentation. So let me begin by the parable in its immediate context. 25 to 37, these verses are structured as two matching dialogues. In both cases, the lawyer asks a question, Jesus responds by asking his own question, the lawyer answers Jesus' question, and only then does Jesus answer the lawyer's question. So, the lawyer asks a question, for example, 25, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus does not respond to the question by giving an answer, but by providing his own question. What is written in the law? How do you read it? And then, verse 27, the lawyer responds by answering Jesus' question, and only then does Jesus answer the lawyer's question. Then the whole pattern is repeated again. The lawyer wanting to justify himself asks Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And then Jesus asks his question, and the parable that precedes that question is really a setup in order to frame the question. That's what the parable is doing there. He tells the story, and out of the story, he then says, so then, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Then the lawyer asks, answers Jesus' question, and then so forth. That's worth thinking about. I have a former student, Jewish in terms of background, um, who came to Trinity a number of years ago and went into uh, ministry with Campus Crusade for Christ. And he wrote a book a few years ago called Questioning Evangelism. Uh, I highly recommend it to you if you're interested in evangelism at all. Uh, he is not questioning evangelism. He is showing how questions ought to function in evangelism, and he begins by running right through the Gospels to note all the occasions when Jesus answers a question with a question. And he starts to show how that can work out in contemporary life as well. So somebody asks you, you don't really believe that God's going to send everybody to hell, do you, who doesn't believe in Jesus? How do you respond? Well, you could respond by trying to give an answer, but your answer is going to get very complicated very fast if you start going into the holiness of God and uh, uh, the inevitability of uh, destruction if you cut yourself off from the giver of life, uh, what the wrath of God means and how it works in Scripture and, and uh, the grace of God in the cross and, and so forth. And, and pr probably the initial question was not all that serious a question in any case. It was almost a throwaway line to uh, just get you in the face. So my friend Randy Newman would say, surely you don't think that nobody should go to hell, do you? I mean, do you think anybody should be there? How about Pol Pot wipes out a third of the population of Cambodia? Do you think he should maybe go to hell? And inevitably the person comes back and says, well, may, there might be some people, you know. <laughs> Uh, so what kind of criteria do you, do you think you should use? And suddenly you enter a more serious discussion, you see. It's a kind of questioning evangelism. And he gives many, many, many illustrations of that sort of thing. And that's what Jesus does quite often, and it is what goes on here. So, the first dialogue, 25 to 28. An expert in the law. I need not explain to this august crowd that this is the law of God, the law of Moses, which makes the man not only a legal expert, but a theological expert. 
He stands up. In those days, teachers sat, and usually their students sat with them. But on the other hand, the students stood up in order to ask a question as a mark of respect. But here we're explicitly told that this expert stood up not as a mark of respect, but to test Jesus, something that happens not infrequently in the Gospels, of course. One remembers, as one gets closer to the cross, a passage such as this. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him and so forth. Now, we don't see anything quite that rigorous in our classrooms, but every once in a while we do suspect that questions are asked not so much to solicit information and formation as to um, um, see if it's possible to trap the professor. I'm sure that that never happens at Concordia. I confess it sometimes happens at Trinity. And in this case, it's a good deal more malicious, I suspect, than what takes place occasionally in our schools. So he stands up and he asks his question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Questions about uh, gaining in, in eternal life, even the language of inheriting eternal life, are not all that uncommon in Judaism. On the other hand, this form of asking about inheriting eternal life is just slightly bizarre. What must I do to inherit eternal life? One is tempted to be a smart mouth and reply, well, get born into the right family. That's what you do to get an inheritance. But, but obviously you are mixing a certain kind of metaphor, inheriting eternal life, a not uncommon locution, with the assumption that in some fashion or another you have to do something to gain this blessing. As Ken Bailey has said, inheritance is not payment for services rendered. In other words, the question itself presupposes at least some kind of misconception. And so Jesus asks his own question. What is your understanding of what the Bible says is needed? And the lawyers answer, Verse 27, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Now for those who read their Bibles regularly, this is a bit of a stunner for it inevitably calls to mind how Jesus himself links these two. Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. You can read the passage yourself in Mark 12:28 and following. But when Jesus brings these two together, the context is a bit different. It's precipitated by another question from a Pharisee. There the Pharisee asks simply, which is the greatest commandment in the law? There was a lengthy discussion on such matters in first century rabbinic circles. And a variety of different answers were advanced. Jesus brings two together. Deuteronomy 6, in the context of the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And in that context, you shall love the Lord your God with heart and soul and mind and strength and so forth. And then Leviticus 19. It's worth pausing on what Jesus is doing by bringing those two together before we see the contrast in what this scribe is doing when he brings the two together. The context show that the mingling of the two um, is to quite different import depending on the context. In paganism, where polytheism reigns, 
it is not only inappropriate, but impossible to devote all of your affection, all of your allegiance to one God. It would be a stupid thing to do. In the Greco-Roman world, if you want to make a sea voyage, then you offer up an incense to Neptune. If you want to make a speech, then you want the god of communication on side, Mercury in the Roman world, Hermes in the, in the Greek world, and so forth. Thousands of gods. And, um, and in this respect, because there are so many domains of life, and each of the gods has certain overlapping sets of domains, but only limited domains, therefore you, you must, uh, you, you must uh, share your allegiance to the domain of the gods uh, without pouring all of your affection and allegiance into the bosom of only one. But supposing there is only one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. The Lord is one. And then the commandment. In other words, that first commandment is predicated on monotheism. And not just any monotheism, but distinctively biblical monotheism such that we acknowledge our creatureliness before God and recognize that he is the sovereign to whom all allegiance is due. And that means in biblical thought, the heart of sin is idolatry. It is the dethroning of this God. If the first commandment is to love God with heart and soul and mind and strength, the first sin is not to love God with heart and soul and mind and strength. It is first not only in terms of its paramount importance, but also in a certain logical order. It is the commandment that is always broken whenever you break any other. If this commandment were never broken, we would not break any other. And thus it is foundational. It is the first commandment. Moreover, it is also at the core of what makes sin, sin. We remember the terrible downfall of David in uh, the matter of Bathsheba. And when he is finally caught out and exposed by Nathan the prophet, in due course, he writes Psalm 51. And in the context of Psalm 51, he has the cheek to say, against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now, at a certain empirical level, that is a load of first-class malarkey. He certain, certainly has sinned against Bathsheba. He seduced her. He sinned against Uriah. He had him murdered. He sinned against the baby in Bathsheba's womb. He sinned against the military high command. He corrupted them. He sinned against his own family. He betrayed them. He sinned against the nation. He wasn't acting as the chief magistrate should with genuine... It's difficult to think of anybody he hasn't sinned against. <laughs> and yet he stands there or sits there with a straight face and says, against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. And yet in the deepest sense, that is exactly right. What makes sin so heinous, what makes sin so awful, is precisely that it is offense against God. And the second commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, sinning against God's image bearer. But in Leviticus 19, where that is located, where that is found, in the long list of moral and ethical obligations listed there, again and again is the grounding refrain, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Thus, failure to love your neighbor as yourself is itself already grounded in failure to love God with heart and soul and mind and strength. 
If you cheat on your income tax, the most offended party is not Uncle Sam, it is the Lord God. If you betray your spouse, the most offended party is God Almighty. If you watch porn, the most offended party is God Almighty. If you cheat on your exam, the most offended party is God Almighty. If you nurture bitterness or envy in the ministry, then the most offended party is God Almighty. It invests all of our sinning with enormous weight. And it is also, then, the necessary foundation for establishing the need for forgiveness from God. Whatever other forgiveness we may secure, whatever kind of restoration we may secure in the domain of social relationships, what we must have is God's forgiveness or we do not have very much. Now that's the matrix in which Jesus expounds this notion. That is, what is the first command, the primal command as it were. And that particular Pharisee in conversation with Jesus says, well said, Master. Indeed, these are the first two. But here there is quite a different setting. Here the setting is not what is the first commandment, but what must I do to inherit eternal life? To bring these two together now in this context presupposes that one can inherit eternal life simply by keeping these two commandments. It's possible, though it is impossible to establish the sequence for sure, it is possible that this man actually knew Jesus' answer. It's impossible to say which came first. If, if this lawyer, this religious authority, this scribe, knew of Jesus' answer, he may have been throwing Jesus' answer back at Jesus just to give a fast answer that he thought Jesus would approve. Do you see? It's possible. Which showed, if so, that he himself did not understand Jesus' answer or the context in which it was first given. Jesus replies, then, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. <laughs> Does this mean that Jesus expects that people will obey these two commandments and thus be saved? It's as if Jesus is saying, quite right, my dear sir. Indeed, anyone who meets such a standard does not need grace. Go ahead. Do this, and you will live. If you want to do something to inherit eternal life, this is what you must do. Go ahead. That brings up some reflections on larger biblical theological themes. There are some genres of scripture that deal with rights and wrongs in the most absolutist categories. Wisdom literature is like that, for example. According to Proverbs, you're either following lady wisdom or you're following dame folly. And there's no point saying I'd like some halfway dame, thank you, who is sometimes wise and sometimes a bit off the rails. Apocalyptic is like that as well. Apocalyptic knows good guys and bad guys. It doesn't know anything in between. And um, sometimes the wisdom literature comes out in the Psalms. You recall Psalm 1. There is a contrast between the righteous person and the unrighteous person. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. That's what the righteous person is not like. But his, his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. 
That's what he is like. So he's described negatively, he's described positively, then he's described metaphorically. He shall be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Whatever he does prospers. And it's leaf, his leaf never, never fades. That's what he is like metaphorically. Then verse 4, a strong negation in Hebrew. Not so the ungodly, not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Unlike the tree planted by streams of water, rootless, fruitless, lifeless, worthless, driven away. They shall not stand in the judgment. They shall not stand in the congregation of the righteous. And then a final summarizing contrast between the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. For the Lord knows, he watches over, he owns as his the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. As significant as tracks made by the seashore before the tide comes in and the tide goes out and the tracks are no more. Now how do you respond to that? How do you preach it? You see, if you preach such absolutes just by themselves, they tend to produce one of two results. Either very self-righteous people. That is, I'm on the good side, others are on the dark side. Or it produces people in despair. I can never meet those good side standards. In Lutheran context, that is called preaching the law even when the genre isn't law. It's preaching certainly the demand of God. Theologically, it's preaching the law. And it does not prove, it, it, it does not secure transformation. Jesus himself preaches in many different genres, but when he is preaching as a wisdom preacher might, then you come across the same sharp antitheses, as, for example, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. You build your house on the sand, or you build your house on the rock. If you build your house on the rock, then it's deeply anchored, the storms come, the winds crash into it, the waves sweep over it, and it stands. If you build your house on the sand, it's washed away. There's no point saying, uh, excuse me, Jesus, I'd rather like to choose hard pan clay. You can't do that in wisdom literature. It's the wrong genre. It's an absolute dichotomy. And uh, likewise, you enter into the straight gate, the narrow way that leads to life, or you enter in the broad way that leads to destruction. And there's no point saying, how about an in-between way? I don't want to be a goody-goody, but I don't want to be a real slob. You see, you can't do that. In wisdom literature, it's absolute. But in narrative literature, very frequently there are in-betweens, especially historical narrative literature. So in narrative literature, you have David, a man after God's own heart who manages to commit adultery and murder. One wonders what he would have done if he hadn't been a man after God's own heart. <laughs> what is shocking about all of this is that, is that in so many ways he is a hero. He's a military hero. He's a composer of great hymns. He knows the ecstasies of worship. Uh, he, he thinks strategically about all kinds of uh, long-term matters. He, he's, he's concerned to do good and, and to extend righteousness. He can be corrected and rebuked. But sinner he is nevertheless, and a pretty wretched one at that. Now, if you had that kind of literature only, you might learn from it, oh, well, if David fell, it's not too surprising if I do too. But if you have only the absolutist literature, then it drives us either to arrogance or to pride. Clearly, in this man's case, this absolutist way of thinking has driven him to pride. That he should actually think, if he's thinking at all, actually think that you can find your way to God by loving God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength, I am quite sure in his own thinking that 
he could tick that one off in his mind because in his own mind, he was obeying all the individual discrete applications that the rabbis had worked out with respect to the law. He could prove his love for the law because he was observing all the different categories of, of uh, legal demands, avoiding all the prohibited categories of work and so forth. But in this case, if it's not the first commandment that gets his attention, it's the second. And who is my neighbor, he asks. He may have asked that out of partly theological interest and partly out of a pricked conscience. For indeed, in Leviticus 19, where that command occurs, that passage had generated some context of discussion in rabbinic circles as to just how far this neighbor category went. A little farther on in the chapter, there is question about whether the outsider, the, the non-Jew, the non-citizen is to be considered a neighbor. What ticked off this question is not possible to answer in detail. But Luke comments, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? which kicks off the second round of discussion. Now, this self-justification approach is one of the minor sub-themes of Luke, quite an important one, sometimes overlooked. One could get at it half a dozen different ways. We're used to thinking about justification as God's justification of us. God declares us to be just, on the, on the ground of what Christ has done for us. He has borne our sin, its guilt and shame and consequences in his own body on the tree. And we ourselves are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So an individual is simul justus et peccator because at the end of the day, justification itself does not transform us, though justification is never left alone and all of salvation is guaranteed to transform us, justification nevertheless does grant us a certain standing before God that we would not otherwise have. This is God's declaration of our justice on, um, as a consequence of what Christ has done for us. What then is the opposite of justification? Well, it depends a bit on what axis you look at. You could say <laughs> no justification. But on another axis, the opposite of justification, understood in a distinctively Pauline, but I would say more generally biblical sense, the opposite of it is self-justification. In the one case, we're justified by God. In the other case, we're justifying ourselves. And that theme, as I say, keeps recurring in the Gospel of Luke. Thus, for example, when Jesus talks about money in Luke 16 in the second parable we'll look at this morning. The Pharisees who loved money, 1614, heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. In other words, in this particular context, that which justifies is financial success. And without anybody thinking that there are individuals who go around overtly looking at themselves in the mirror and saying, I am justified, I've reached my fifth million. Yet nevertheless, in terms of the general outlook on life, it's quite easy to think in those terms, isn't it? Or without using the terms exactly, but nevertheless with very much the same um, pattern in view, in Luke 18, the rich man and Lazarus, uh, the, the, uh, the, 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 the rich Pharisee and the tax collector. 
we should remember that in 18.9, that kicks off this description, Luke comments, to some who were confident of their own righteousness. And look down on everybody else. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. And so one man says, apparently with adoration, apparently with some measure of genuine gratitude, I thank you, God, that I am not as other men are. Non-Lutheran, for example. <laughs> you, you see, it's, it's quite possible to find your allegiance in all kinds of corners, isn't it? Do, do you see? And, and, and genuinely to be grateful for it, to, to thank God for, for, for the grace that's there. But at the end of the day, one begins to suspect after a while that there's a, a certain amount of self-promotion that could creep into this as well, that can be tied to money or race or sex or gender or education or a country you live in, national patriotism, whatever. But in particular, it, it, it becomes a way of self-justification, a kind of ascription of our own status, our own righteousness before God. But we are told that the other man who simply cried out, God have mercy on me, a sinner, went to his home justified. And in the context, it's certainly not because he's justifying himself, but because God has justified him. And so on. We could work through quite a number of chapters in Luke and observe how this um, theme of self-justification plays out. And that is, how, uh, imp- that is so important to see or else we are likely to misunderstand this parable. You, you really are working in the domain of what justifies you. Go ahead. Do it. Knock yourself out. But he wishing to justify himself asked who is my neighbor. So by way of response, then, Jesus makes a setup for his question, which of the three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Now before we come to the question that Jesus poses, we need to run quickly through the parable itself. First century society was uh, differentiated in language, speech patterns, in dress, in uh, habit of life. The priests, for example, could speak Hebrew. The peasants, especially in the south, spoke Aramaic. Along the coasts, still spoke, some still spoke Phoenician. In the north, they spoke Syriac and Greek. The officials spoke Latin. And quite a few people would have snippets of most of them, if not all of them, uh, which they could use in particular domains of life. Moreover, their dress, likewise, would sometimes betray them. They did not all wear the same kinds of clothes. Priests were usually well-to-do. Almost certainly, this priest would have been riding a donkey, traveling the 17 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho. Almost certainly, he was up at the temple doing his two-week stint. That was not uncommon for priests to go up to the temple to do their duty, then return to their home patches uh, for the rest of the year. When he sees this man by the side of the road, then, unconscious or dead, he could not hear his speech. He could not infer what kind of background he came from from his dress. He was stripped, naked, and left for dead. If, for example, this priest had thought that the chap lying there was a fellow priest, the outcome might have been a bit different. A certain collegiality would kick in. 
a sense of obligation perhaps. And in addition, the situation was clearly dangerous. If thugs had come along and mugged one party, they might still be in the neighborhood and can mug somebody else. And, of course, if the man is dead, then should the priest touch him, he is bound to go back up to Jerusalem for another week of purification. He would be, of course, corrupted. And somewhat similar for the Levites coming along. What does the Samaritan do? I need not outline how badly the Samaritans were thought of by Jews in the first century. Not only half-breeds, and not only corroded in their religion, accepting only the Pentateuch as authoritative, but none of the later Old Testament material, the material from Tanakh, the Hebrew canon that elevated David in Jerusalem and established the dynasty and so forth, none of that. And of course they were political enemies. It had only been about a century and a half since the um, Jews had gone north and smashed the temple that the Samaritans had built at Gedizim Debal. No love was lost between them. John comments that they would not have even eaten together. But this Samaritan does not ask the question, I wonder if this is a fellow Samaritan. He doesn't ask the question. He merely pours in oil and wine, often mingled for medicinal purposes, transports him on his own donkey, which means he himself is now walking, pays two denarii, which would cover the bill for a week or two, but more importantly, covers all further costs because under the law at the time if the man had stayed on beyond what was paid for by the Samaritan then if he couldn't pay off the debt he would have been honor bound, duty bound, perhaps even legally bound to sell himself in slavery to pay off the debt and since he had been stripped naked he had nothing to pay with it at all. In other words the Samaritan has not only saved his life he saved him from slavery. And then Jesus famous question, which inverts the question, of course, of the lawyer. The lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? Jesus does not answer that question. His own question forces things to run on another plane. Not who is my neighbor, but who is the neighbor to the man who fell among the hands of robbers? The expert in the law dare not even take the word Samaritan to his lips. He simply describes him as the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now will you justify yourself before people and before God? Now, at this juncture, it's worth reminding ourselves about some of the things in the context. Go back to chapter 9. Chapter 944 finds Jesus unambiguously anticipating his own death. Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered over to human hands. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. Now it is important to keep remembering their ignorance despite Jesus' repeated declaration of his own impending death right through the gospel accounts. 
There are five passion predictions in Matthew, for example, and clearly in each case, the disciples don't have a clue what's going on. We may stop today and wonder how they could be so thick. And the fact of the matter is they simply did not have any categories in their own heads for a crucified Messiah. You can almost overhear them muttering, deep, deep. Jesus does say some enigmatic things, doesn't he? Deep, deep. We'll understand it someday, won't we? Deep, deep. But clearly they didn't understand. And the proof positive is that once Jesus is actually in the tomb, dead, buried, the disciples are not in the upper room saying, yes, I can hardly wait till Sunday. They still are afraid. They have no categories and they're hiding from the Jews lest they themselves should be next on the hit list. And then with this setup, verses 44 and 45, verse 51, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out to Jerusalem. And of course, gospel students will recall that this kicks off what is sometimes called the Lucan travel narrative. From here to the end of the gospel, Jesus is heading resolutely to Jerusalem and everything has to be read in the light of this move to Jerusalem and his own passion and resurrection. Not to read the material in that light is to misunderstand Luke. It's because of such structures in our Gospels in which the shadow of the cross falls a long way back into the narrative that many have suggested that the Gospels are really passion narratives with extended introductions. That's why when people come along and advance the Gospel of Judas or the Gospel of Thomas as further sources, other Gospels that have somehow been squashed by this vicious thing called orthodoxy, it's really important to understand that no one considered them Gospels at all at the time. Even our word Gospel as a genre is an anachronism. Martin Hengel and others have pointed out something that we should have recognized in any case, that uh, in the first century no one spoke of the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke, and the Gospel of John. It was the Gospel of Jesus Christ, period. According to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, there was one Gospel. And because this one Gospel was so much bound up with the passion and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, therefore it was impossible to be faithful to this one Gospel of Jesus Christ without making that absolutely central. So when you come to the Gospel of Thomas, 114 discrete snippets with a couple of tiny little narrative passages, it's not the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Because even apart from the theology that you do find in the document, there's no passion narrative, there's no storyline, there's no death and resurrection. And besides questions of date and the like, um, it simply was not accepted any time in the first century as gospel. Here, in other words, in Luke, we are coming across some of the very material that establishes what Luke's purpose is. You dare not read anything in Luke, or for that matter in Matthew, Mark, or John either. You dare not read anything in Luke without seeing how it contributes to the flow toward the cross and the resurrection. You just dare not do it. You distort what the gospel of Jesus Christ really is. And here it is made explicit for us. He resolutely sets out to Jerusalem and now everything that takes place in this travel narrative is under the shadow of the cross. Then in Luke 10, Jesus sends out the 72 in a kind of trainee mission. And when they come back, they rejoice because even the demons are subject to them in Jesus' name. And Jesus replies, I saw Satan fell like lightning from heaven, verse 18. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, 
Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. So here, in other words, what it means to have eternal life, what it means to be significant, what is important in one's life is at the end of the day not even exhibitions of power, still less the possession of many, many goods. What is important is to have one's name written in heaven. To receive this revelation from God himself. If I may dare come back to Martin Lloyd-Jones when he was dying of cancer, late 1980, early 81. The man who became his biographer, Ian Murray, had constant access to him. And uh, Ian has said in conversation since then that on one occasion he went in, perhaps six months or so before the doctor finally succumbed to the disease. And he said, um, how are you coping now that you're put on the shelf? You have preached to thousands and thousands all around. You have seen thousands and thousands converted. You have been instrumental in the rejuvenation of uh, British InterVarsity, of the founding of uh, Tyndale House, of the Westminster Conference for Pastors, of the foundation of Banner of Truth Trust. Uh, you have become a model of expository preaching all through the British Isles and beyond. Tens of thousands, countless tens of thousands read your books, and now it takes you all of your energy to stagger out of bed, get dressed in a three-piece suit that he wore every day, even while he was ill, sit in a chair for a bit and edit a manuscript for an hour before undressing going back to bed. How are you coping with that now that you've been put on the shelf? And the doctor replied, do not rejoice that the demons are subject to you in my name but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. I am perfectly content. Because he understood what the most important thing was, do you see? It shapes everything. It's your standing before God. And that too is part of the setup for this account. And then after the parable of the Good Samaritan, we find ourselves at the home of Martha and Mary at the end of the chapter. And one is scurrying around doing many, 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 many things. In part, in the flow of the narrative, to justify ourselves. Undoubtedly, these things have to be done. But the other sits at the feet of Jesus. And which one is justified, without using that language, by Jesus himself? So let me come then to some pastoral reflections in the wake of this understanding of the text. Number one, undoubtedly eternal life is inherited. Undoubtedly not only in Luke's gospel but in the entire word of God. It turns on Jesus and his cross. It cannot be earned. The pretentiousness of this lawyer is appalling. 
and Jesus exposes it ruthlessly. Number two, though it is not Jesus' point in telling the parable, it may conceivably be part of Luke's point in retelling it. Namely, that the ideal Good Samaritan is Jesus himself. Now, that is not Jesus' point. It simply makes no sense to think that that is the case. But Jesus comes along and not only saves us from death, but saves us from slavery. And without, in any sense, trying to protect himself, he himself expends in order that we might be received. And this, regardless of race or identification or the like. In other words, that is not the point of the narrative as Jesus tells it. But it is hard not to think that Luke understands it when he has so much theology um, uh, bound up with moving toward the cross and the good that Jesus does in consequence of it, moving out from the training of the 72 to commission and ultimately the narrative in Acts and beyond. It is only an inferential point. I won't um, be hung out to dry on it, but I suspect that Luke has it in the back of his mind. Number three. Yet clearly, we would be missing something if we denied that Jesus expects his followers to behave as he himself does. The same point is made in a lot of ways in the New Testament. At the heart of what the cross achieves is our salvation by setting aside God's wrath, by canceling sin, but yet... Although in this sense the cross is unique, the Apostle Peter himself insists that he thereby leaves us an example that we may follow in his steps. Or in the words of the Lord Jesus himself in Mark 8 and Matthew 16 and parallels, we too are to take up our cross and follow him. And in that sense, then, if Jesus himself is the Good Samaritan, if Jesus himself insists that the first two commandments are to love God with heart and soul and mind and strength and our neighbor as ourselves, then although it would be foolish to think that we thereby secure salvation, it would be equally foolish to think that salvation can be secured without any sign of conformity to such transformed living. And that could be teased out at great length. And that is in line with many, many other scriptural evidences. For example, John's teaching on the new birth in John 3 certainly insists that all who have been born from above will show effects like the effects of wind, even if we cannot uh, thereby explain all the mechanics that go into it. So while we ought to avoid those who insist there is... Um, a way we can justify ourselves, we should avoid those who want justification to be the totality of salvation without understanding that it is a much more comprehensive vision. <clears throat>